This is my favorite week of the whole year. And as a preacher, I, I should say that it's the best holiday, and by the way, it is the best holiday. You know, nothing against Christmas or Easter or New Year's or President's Day or anything else, but Thanksgiving is the best. Uh, and, and I, as a preacher, I, I should say that it's the best not because of the, the turkey and the, the dressing and the gravy and the, the pie. <laughs> I, I should say that it's the best because of the Thanksgiving and the gratitude and all of those things. So we'll go with that, okay? The, the gratitude thing. It is good, isn't it? To spend some time thinking about what are you thankful for? So what are you thankful for? What are the things this week, especially as we sit down and we count our blessings, what are the things that you'll, you'll be thinking about? Maybe your family, maybe your friends, maybe your health, maybe your home, maybe your job, and all of those things are good things, aren't they? Things for which we ought to be thankful, things for which we ought to take some time and stop and say, thank you, God, I am so incredibly blessed. But may I suggest that as you count your blessings, put the resurrection of Jesus at the top of your list. Could I suggest that to us this week? And not only should we weigh all of the other good things against this and say all of these things are good, but they're not quite as good as the fact that the tomb is empty as we've been celebrating all morning. All of these things are good. And we weigh those things against, oh, but they're not as good as this truth that the tomb is empty. Even more important than weighing all of those good things against the resurrection, it's even more important, I think, that we weigh all of the bad things against the resurrection of Jesus. I had lunch this week with a good friend of mine, one of my very best friends. A few years ago, he buried his two-year-old son, Daniel. And I know that for my friend Michael, I know that the empty tomb is the thing for which he is the most thankful. The thing that gives him joy in spite of the pain, in spite of the grief. And we all have pain, and we all have grief, and we all have sorrow, and we all have these things that come in, and we weigh them against the resurrection, and we say, but Jesus wins. Isn't that what we've been talking about all month long? Jesus wins. The resurrection of Jesus means everything is different now. Pain still hurts. Sorrow is still heavy. Grief is still a burden we must bear. Death is still an enemy. But we know how it all ends. And so we rejoice. And as we Thank God for all of the good things in our life, all of the good things in our world. At the very top of our list is the fact that the tomb is empty. Amen? So let's, let's read about and think about the resurrection of Jesus. We're, we've been going through John all year long, and we're almost ready to wrap up the gospel account of John. And We're in John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Jesus has been crucified. And as we talked about last week, though, on the surface, we say this is a, a horrible thing that's happened. But John keeps telling us, but it's not. It's not. 
Jesus is in charge. And even though they're doing it mockingly by putting a crown of thorns on his head, even though they're doing it mockingly by saying, Hail, King of the Jews, even though they're doing it mockingly by putting a sign above his head saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, even though they mean it mockingly and they mean it for evil, God means it for good and it is every bit truth. And Jesus is being lifted up, not just in spite of the cross, But in the cross, Jesus is being lifted up as king of kings. And the truth is being proclaimed that he really is the king, not just of the Jews, but of the world. And now now we read the best part of the story. John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, I just want us to imagine, this morning is all just just about putting ourselves in the story. Just imagine, you came to the grave a couple of days, three days after you had had a funeral for a friend. Not just a friend. Somebody you were willing to turn your whole life over for. Turned your whole world upside down. Someone in whom you put all of your hopes and you said, this is... This person is so different, and this person is going to change the world. And then they died. And then a few days after their funeral, you go to their their tomb, their grave, and the grave is empty. In In our sense, it would be a hole in the ground, and the hole is empty. What would you feel? You would panic, and that's exactly what Mary did. Now, I want you to notice, and and as you read through this chapter, you'll see it, that John says the word saw or seen over and over and over and over again. He wants you to know what the people are seeing. So if we're going to read this story in the way I think John wants us to read it, you have to see it. So imagine Mary Magdalene, and we know from the other accounts she's not alone, but gets to the tomb and it's empty. So, verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who's that? The one whom Jesus loved? John, right? The one who's writing this. So she went to Peter and the, the disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. Again, again, imagine just panic and adrenaline. They're running together. But the other disciple, that's John, who's writing this. I always find this part funny. He says, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) Right? Now, I I think it's awesome that John has given us this eyewitness account and saying, hey, listen, I'm I'm just reporting the facts. I'm just telling you. I'm faster than Peter. I don't know what to say. But I just imagine every time Peter reads this, you know, he just rolled his eyes like, oh, come on, John. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he, what's the word? Saw. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went in the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, why is this significant? Why is it significant not only that there's no body, but all of the cloths that had been wrapped around him, even the face cloth that had been over his head, 
We're all lying there. In fact, the face cloth is folded up, it says, and lying there by the cloth. Why is that significant? Because what is it that Mary Magdalene had come and said to the men? She said, listen, I'm afraid somebody has stolen his body. But then when you get to the scene, something doesn't make sense. If his body's been stolen, why are the cloths still there? And why is the face cloth folded up? That doesn't make any sense. What kind of a grave robber unwraps the body and steals it and leaves the cloths there, much less takes time to fold the face cloth and leave it there? That doesn't make any sense. And the men knew it as soon as they saw it. Then the other disciple, parenthetically, who had reached the tomb first, just saying, (laughs) also went in, and he, what's the word? Saw. And then John brings up another one of his favorite words. He saw and believed. Now, now maybe John didn't say anything at this point, but he's writing this account, so we know what he was thinking. He's telling us, I saw, what did he see? He didn't see Jesus, right? He just saw this empty tomb, but he saw the cloths lying there. And he saw the face cloth folded up. And John says that he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So he says, listen, I saw it. I didn't get the big picture yet. I didn't understand because later, not only John, but Peter and all the disciples and all disciples of Jesus, we would say, well, yes, of course. This is the only way the scriptures make sense. This is what all the scriptures have been saying. This is what the whole story has been saying, that God will not abandon his Messiah to the grave. He will not abandon his Messiah in Hades. But his Messiah will rise and will rule the world, right? But they didn't understand that quite yet. But they did understand that the tomb was empty. And the body hadn't been stolen because that wouldn't make sense given what was there. And they went back to their homes. It it appears they just walked past Mary. I don't know. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb. And she, what's the word? Saw. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and, what's the word? Saw. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. You see how John is kind of putting this all together for us? The the order in which he's putting it, and the words that he's using, and he's saying they saw this, and then they, they were starting to draw some conclusions, and then they saw this, and They were starting to draw some conclusions, and they saw this, and they're starting to draw some conclusions. Nobody had put the big picture together yet, but they're starting to collect the clues, the evidence. They're seeing it. It's unfolding right before their eyes. So she turned and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. I mean, again, you just feel the weight of her heart. Can you imagine 
showing up at the grave of your friend, your master, your, the one that you follow. We don't even really understand that word, follow. But leave family and leave home and say, I'm with him. No matter what it costs me, I'm with him. And then he's gone. And then you show up at his grave and he's gone. And some guy walks up while you're crying and says, why are you crying? And you say, listen, if you're the gardener, you took his body away, tell me, and I'll, I'll come get it. Jesus said to her, Mary. And I guess she recognized his voice. I'm sure she'd heard it countless times before. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, not only try to imagine what she was feeling in that moment, but imagine how hard it was to say, teacher, to admit to yourself, it's him. A moment before, she was convinced his body must have been stolen, but now she hears his voice saying her name. And she turns and looks at him and knows who it is. But don't you know that in that moment, in your grief and in your sorrow, you wouldn't want to say the word teacher? You'd hold on and say, wait, maybe, could it be, is it possible? But then she's convinced. And she says, it is him. And she's thinking in her mind, Scott, that's him. And she says, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, verse 17, Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Next week, we're going to start a new series that talks about this part of the story. What does it mean for Jesus to be sitting at the right hand of God? But we'll save that for next week. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene, went and announced to the disciples, here's the best, best phrase in the whole account, right? I have seen the Lord. I have seen him. He's not stolen. He's not even dead. I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now again, I mean, we just read those words, I have seen the Lord, but can you imagine the joy that is packed into those words. The gratitude, the thankfulness, just the, the trembling of her voice when she comes and she announces that to all the disciples. Listen, I have seen the Lord. Everything that he said is coming true. Everything that we were trying to figure out, what's this guy talking about, about being killed and three days later raised from the dead? What's he talking about? What does this mean? It's all true. He's not dead. I have seen the Lord. 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. The doors are locked. And Jesus walks in and says to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they, what's the word? Saw the Lord. They were what? They were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, that almost sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? 
they saw the Lord. And, and notice that, that this isn't a ghost, right? It's not a spirit. It's not a disembodied spirit. It's Jesus, bodily raised, no longer, not only not, only not in the tomb, but still showing them the wounds in his hands and in his side where the spear was driven. But in a way, a little different too in that he's walking into locked rooms. But it is Jesus bodily raised from the dead. And the disciples saw him. This isn't something they imagined. This isn't even wishful thinking. Every single one of them was a skeptic when it came to the resurrection of Jesus. Weren't they? They were skeptical. When they first heard about the empty tomb, their thoughts didn't first go to, well, he must be raised. He said it was going to happen. Nope. They had to see him. They had to see this is Jesus in order for their hearts to be convinced. But of course, when they were convinced, they were glad. They were glad. This changes everything. This changes everything. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. And that's what apostle means, by the way, one who is sent. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Sort of a foreshadow of the day of Pentecost, isn't it? When the Holy Spirit is breathed into them and they begin to announce in Jerusalem first the forgiveness of sins. 3,000 people are baptized into Jesus, forgiven of their sins. And then they go out, sent out into the whole world to announce, we have seen the Lord. Jesus lives. Jesus forgives. Jesus reigns. Eight days later, sorry, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, here, here's that phrase again, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I, what's the word? See, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, we give Thomas kind of a hard time here, don't we? What do we call him? Like this, right here, this is why we call him what? Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. I mean, he gets that moniker for life, right? I mean, we're just calling him Doubting Thomas. Now, what does he want to do? He wants to see. But he's really no different than the others, right? They all saw, and they didn't believe until they saw. They wanted to see Thomas wants to see, and Thomas says, listen, I'm not going to believe. He might should have believed, but he didn't believe until he had the same experience that they had. He wanted to see the body of Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus alive. He wanted the same opportunity. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
And Thomas answered, and maybe these are the most profound words in the entire book, my Lord and my God. Finally, they see the big picture. This is who he is. He sees and he believes. And we might think, you know, as I read this, I think, I would like that experience too, wouldn't you? Like, I, I want to... I want to see that right now, right? I want to see the risen Jesus. I want to stick, I don't know about stick my hands, but I want to see his wounds. I, I want to have the same experience that the disciples got to have. Why is it that they get this experience of seeing and I simply have to trust their word? But, but listen, listen to the next verse. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We've talked about that word blessed a lot, haven't we? And the word blessed means somebody who has the life, right? The way we use the word the life, right? Or the phrase the life. When we see somebody that's enjoying something, maybe they got a nice car or a nice house or they go to nice vacation spots and we say, ah. Oh, that's the life, right? Or when people post pictures of those things and then they say hashtag blessed, right? You know what I'm saying? They say, this is the life. Jesus says, no, listen. You want to know who has the life? Who's really blessed? Who's blessed even beyond those who saw and touched and experienced that, that visual confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus? You want to know who's blessed beyond them? You. You. You who haven't seen and yet believe. You've listened to these, as John is trying to make us aware, these eyewitness testimonies. Over and over and over and over and over again, John says, she saw, he saw, they saw, they saw, they saw, they saw. And now he's telling you, we saw him. We were skeptical, but we saw him and we believed. And now Jesus is telling you, if you believe, even though you haven't yet seen, you are the most blessed people on the face of the earth. That's, that's it. Listen to the next verse. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which aren't written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. Life now, life forever. Life in this age, life in the age to come. You are the most blessed people because even though you haven't yet seen, you believe. And why wouldn't you? Jesus isn't asking you to blindly accept these things. He's asking you to accept them on the testimony of eyewitnesses, who were skeptical, by the way, but who were convinced and now are giving you their testimony we saw. That's why we believe. And now we're telling you so that even though you can't see, you will believe. And that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you will have life in his name. 
So every week when we go through a passage, we try to think through, well, what's the application of this? You know, what do I do with this information? Well, first of all, I mean, the text tells us what to do, right? Believe. Believe. And also rejoice that you are blessed to have life in his name. But I want us to think through something. I may have told you this story. In fact, the preacher who told me this story, I think, told me not to tell anybody, but I'm going to tell you anyway, um, because it's the best story I've ever heard. There was this really grumpy guy that uh, my preacher friend, he worked with, and, and they were in this sort of men's business meeting at church one time, and apparently the preacher said something that this grumpy guy didn't like very much, and he, the grumpy guy says, now get this, he says, young man, if Jesus heard you say that, he would roll over in his grave. <laughs> Wait a second. If Jesus is in his grave, what are we doing here, right? And it made me realize something. There are many behaviors and attitudes. Next slide, I think. That do not make sense in light of the empty tomb. I want you to think about that for a second. If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and if he is not in his grave, but he reigns, and he lives, and he forgives, and he gives life, then there are certain behaviors and attitudes that don't make sense. In fact, that's what the entire rest of the New Testament is about. It's about the apostles explaining to followers of Jesus in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that behavior makes sense or that behavior doesn't make sense. Pettiness does not make sense in light of the empty tomb. Pettiness does not make sense in light of the empty tomb. Being perpetually grumpy does not make sense in light of the empty tomb. Being bitter does not make sense in light of the empty tomb. Being jealous does not make sense in light of the empty tomb. Being a hedonist where you just live for pleasure does not make sense in light of the empty tomb. But the opposite is true as well. There are many behaviors and attitudes that only make sense in light of the empty tomb. That's the next one. Think about that for a second. There are certain behaviors and attitudes that only make sense if Jesus lives, if Jesus reigns, if Jesus forgives. Why else would we give away so much of ourselves? Why else would we love the way we love? except for the empty tomb. The love that Jesus tells us to love with only makes sense in light of the empty tomb. The joy that we have only makes sense in light of the empty tomb. The peace that passes understanding only makes sense in light of the empty tomb. The gentleness and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the self-control that Jesus teaches us to practice only makes sense in light of the empty tomb. So here's our moment of truth, our question to ponder. Does your life, or how does your life, reflect the gratitude and the joy, the attitudes and behaviors that comes with the empty tomb? You see, I, I know that if you ask that grumpy man in that men's business meeting, you know Jesus is raised, right? You know Jesus lives, right? I'm sure he would have said yes. 
But that moment betrayed his thoughts. In that moment, he betrayed the way he was truly living his life. And he was not living his life in light of the empty tomb. If he was, he never would have said that. He never would have said that. Jesus lives. Jesus reigns. Jesus living and reigning is the only thing that makes this life make sense. And so as we think about the things for which we're thankful, as we gather with family, as we enjoy food, as we enjoy our day, as we enjoy our week, as we enjoy our life, as we go about our life, and we do our best to allow the Spirit of God to produce fruit in us, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, we must live with the empty tomb at the forefront of our minds. And we've got to ask ourselves, how does our life reflect this gratitude and this joy that only comes in light of the empty tomb? And maybe there's somebody here this morning, and in light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you're ready to be buried with him in baptism so that you can be raised up from that water and live and walk in newness of life. Or maybe you just need prayers and encouragement, our shepherds after service. Listen, I know I tell you this every week, and it's like, okay, I know he's wrapping up. I'm going to grab my songbook. No, 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 wait, just a second. You have heavy burdens, burdens we can't know about or help you carry unless you share them with us somehow. And in light of the empty tomb, in light of who we are, we want to help you with those burdens. Not to tell you they really aren't that heavy. Not to tell you to just suck it up and go on and press forward. Not to give you empty platitudes. We're praying for you. We love you. But to encourage you and to pray with you and to walk with you because that's what followers of Jesus do. So let our shepherds know. But come forward as we stand and sing this song.